Hello and welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Harry Enfield dressed up as a teenager. All I want to do is do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for joining us once again and hitting that download button harder than a tackle on our finger, Harland. You might come up today. We'll see. Thank you to everyone as well who got involved in our last episode. Our very niche, very different episode as we looked back at 20 years since the beginning of Sky One's Dream Team. It seems quite popular, an episode, actually. Um, got some retweets out there from Shortlist Magazine, from The Mirror, some of the guys involved in the show as well. Um, Ian Ridley, who was a writer on the show, is now a journalist, as well as uh, Martin Cruz, who, of course, was Luis Samar Rodriguez, and he was on the show. He kindly retweeted it for us, uh, including the, the picture that I found of him as well from the show. Pure 90s, absolute brilliant. But I think a lot of you really enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. It was a great look back. I think we were a bit all over the place because I think we just sort of engrossed in Dream Team rather than a structured episode. But sometimes, hey, that works. And I think I really enjoyed the episode. It seems you lot did too. So thank you very much for getting involved. And a thank you once again to Andrew Kick of uh, Dream Team Die Hard who uh, sent over an email afterwards as well. And he was very pleased with the episode, which was good because if anyone knows their Dream Team, it's Andrew. And again, it was a shame we couldn't quite get him on the show. Technology problems, but it was, we got his seal of approval, which is good enough because he is the man when it comes to Dream Team. So if you haven't listened to that and you're thinking, what the hell am I talking about? Dream Team, Harsh United, Dragon's Lair, Luis Rodriguez, Carl Fletcher, Lindar. All involved in our last episode as we looked back 20 years at Hartford United. Go back and listen to that episode. On to today though, and today we're doing another 11. I'm not going to lie guys, I bloody love doing 11. In fact, when I back years and years ago when I was making my ways in this world and one of my first jobs was working for a local newspaper on their ads team. Bloody hated doing ad sales, but it was a way into the media at the time. Before this social networking stuff, and even really before blogs and everything were a thing. But yeah, that was my way in to, uh, to the media, but... What we used to do, me and my friends, because it was such a boring job to do, media sales, apologies to anyone who does it, but I know the grind it can be. Uh, we used to send each other emails and we used to just pick 11s. We'd pick a theme, not necessarily 90s at the time, but any theme like Ginger 11 or, you know, Best World Cup 11 or anything. That used to keep us busy during the day. A few friends of mine, Paddy O'Sullivan, who's been on the podcast a few times, friend of the show, he was very much at the forefront of that. So I've always liked picking random 11s. And we've got two guys on today, which are perfect for that, because the two 11 shows that we've already done, uh, which you can go back in the archives and listen to, we picked a potential 11, uh, players that we thought may go on to do big things, uh, never quite worked out for them for whatever reason. We did two teams with Sid Lambert back in, I think it was the back end of uh, last year, go back um, in the archive and listen to that. And then slightly more recently, me and Joel Young did uh, tournament teams where we picked an 11 that was made up of the tournaments of the 90s, which was quite difficult when we put in a couple of rules. Um, today, there aren't so many strict rules. Uh, I've left it a bit more open, but it was actually a harder 11 than I thought it would be. Uh, we're doing the most underrated 11 of the 90s, which is really interesting because I think underrated is very subjective. Um, it depends who is doing it. Um, I suppose there's biasism involved. But for instance, guys like uh, Peter Beardsley and Dennis Irwin and Chris Waddle, uh, I think they're guys, even Stephen Manaman, who we've mentioned on the show before, who are actually quite seen as slightly underrated for what they were, especially Peter Beardsley. He's one of those that who anyone who plays with him says how brilliant he was, but probably doesn't get mentioned in the same breath. 
uh, as a lot of the other players are, are for England at that time. I know Gary Lineker always says that he's his favourite partner when they play together for England. So I personally, my team, have gone for people slightly under that radar. So I haven't got those players in my team. I did consider a couple of them. But for the main, they're play- players that are slightly under that. So I haven't seen the other guys' teams. They may include got those guys that I've mentioned. Uh, but again, the underrated is quite open to who's picking it. So we'll see what the guys pick. I don't know if we've got the same guys. It'll be really interesting. So three different teams from me, Joel, and then uh, Sid Lambert will be picking our underrated 11s today. We've also got a brilliant interview with somebody who could fall in that category, um, a very stalwart of the 1990s for Sheffield Wednesday, uh, a time at Nottingham Forest as well, uh, played for Graham Taylor at England level during the uh, Euro 92 and sort of to the 94 campaign as well. Colton Palmer is our guest on today's show, so we'll be speaking to him. I don't want to keep this intro very long because uh, we've got 33 players to pretty much talk about if we don't pick the same ones in this episode. So it could be slightly longer than normal. So we'll see how we get on. I just wanted to, oh, excuse me, a little shout out to Adidas. I know it's a bit of a random one, but anyone who may have seen our Twitter feed this week and things that were launched yesterday by Adidas. I'm recording this on Halloween, actually. So happy Halloween to everyone and happy birthday to Dennis Irwin. Well, there's a second mention for him. Didn't expect to do that. And Marco Van Basten. It's his birthday today. Someone with an 80s more player, but someone I really rated. And now I forget those 19 those goals at 19... Uh, Euro 88, wasn't it? Those goals are up there. Keep it 90s, though, Ash. Come on, keep it 90s. Um, I've lost my way now. What was I saying? Right, Adidas, yes. Uh, I wanted to shout out to them. Because if you're a Man United fan, have you seen their new range they've done based on what is one of my favourite ever? Not just Man United kits. It's in my top five kits of all time, which we did a show with John Devlin. Uh, go back in the archives and listen to that. That brilliant Maple Leaf kit, which the uh, the current uh, away kit is kind of based on the 1992 Man United away kit. Uh, Adidas released a range, which is they've re-released the shirt. Very nice. They've done a zip-up jacket, which is exactly the same pattern, pattern but a zip-up jacket. Absolutely lovely. If I was a Man United fan, I'd buy both. But even better, they've released trainers. Now, I'm a bit of a trainer geek as well. Back in the day, I used to work for JD Sports. Oh, I'm really going through my work history today. I didn't realise I was going to do that either. But I'm a bit of a trainer horde at the time. I've tried to let go over the years, but I do like a good pair of trainers. And these, I think they're Sambas, or they could be Gazelles. I don't, know, don't quote me on that, but there's some Adidas original range trainers. They're red, obviously, for Man United. Uh, but inside, the inner sole, is that maple leaf pattern. Absolutely gorgeous, as uh, Craig Revel Hall would say on Strictly Come Dancing. It is a range, if I was a main, I'm tempted now, and I'm not a Man United fan, but I don't feel I could quite get away with, and it just wouldn't feel right actually wearing this range, being a QPR fan, even though I do love that pattern, that kit, that time, obviously, the 90s, so well done. Also, Adidas have reached a new uh, range with David Beckham, going back to 1998, and his Predator Accelerator boot, uh, one of the most famous boots that he wore during the time at Adidas, because he's been with Adidas pretty much his whole career, but I always remember those ones, and probably the next one, the champagne colour ones, I think they were around 2002 as well, but that sort of era for me really sticks out with David Beckham. They did a launch yesterday, the Capsule Collection, and they've reached a new collection of boots and trainers and some uh, indoor boots that are based on that as well. So I love people embracing the 90s. It makes me feel warm inside. And we're going to do just that now on today's show. We're going to embrace the 90s by talking about some players that probably haven't been mentioned as much as others on this show as we talk underrated 11. Myself, Joe Young and Sid Lambert, as well as an interview with Colton Palmer. Enjoy the show. And as always, keep it 90s. 
Yes, we are picking another 11 today. Yes, very much love these 11s here on Alive and Kicking. And today it's the turn of the most underrated 11 of the 90s. Yes, very different subject, quite subjective, I think. Really depends on who's picking them. So it'd be really interesting to see who the guys have picked today. And joining me on the show, I couldn't wish for two better people. If I had a 1990s football desert island, which is a strange thing, I would pick these two guys. Firstly, he is a social media mogul. He's the grandfather clock of AK90s. He's not a friend of the show. He is part of of the show mr joel young how you doing hello ash how are you oh i'm very well i still in that's you know, good we did well with our dream team episode last week seems to people still love harchester don't they i've had lots of people contacting me on twitter asking me all sorts about uh harchester united lots of which i don't have an answer for but you know <laughs> oh, no. but it's been fun joining in yeah i, think I mean pro- essentially this is what we're playing today you're talking about 90s football desert island we're essentially playing desert island football players yeah, we are kind of, aren't we? Yeah. Well, there's mm. a. What's Desert Island Discs? What era is that? Desert Island. What do you mean? Desert Island Discs is every era. Yeah, it's been going say, since about 1947. Yeah. It's not 90s. It's like forever, isn't it? So yeah, we're mm. embracing the 90s version of that, I suppose. And joining us, somebody hasn't been on the show for a while, which is wrong. We need him more often. He's the author of the brilliant book Cashing In. If you haven't read this book, Christmas is coming, people. And if you love your 90s football, you know somebody who loves it even more than you. Get your mitts on this book. His author, Sid Lambert. Welcome back to the show, Sid. Thanks for having me back on, Ash. And can I say, uh, I absolutely loved what you two fellas did on the Dream Team episode. <laughs> but there was one shocking fact that emerged afterwards that kind of got lost in the shuffle. And that's the fact that Luis Amor Rodriguez has only got 614 followers on Twitter. I know, I know. Ridiculous. 614! Kim Kardashian's got about five million. And here he is, one of the greatest actors of that generation. 600 people on Twitter. Probably 20% of them are bots. What a disgrace. I think he's, I think he's been lying low because he just doesn't want to deal with the, with the hassle. He's, he's made his choice now to leave, to go to Australia. You know, and I think that's the only thing he had to do to escape the sensationalism that was surrounding his career. I mean, he's done a, big, well, a better accent than Dick Van Dyke and he still hasn't got that many followers. It's, it's ridiculous. It's a scandal. Uh, talking about lying low, I was very impressed by his real-life exploits with uh, Linda Block. Well yeah, done. Well done. Yeah, fair play. Well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Indeed. But yeah, go and follow Martin Cruz. He's a top man as well with a very dodgy Aussie accent. But that was last time out. Today we're talking about underrated 11s. And I don't know about you chaps. I thought this was harder than it could have been. What did you think? <laughs> Everybody's waiting for somebody else to go yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, listen, um, the, the problem I with technology... It, uh, I found it. Um, I found it all right. Actually, there was a couple of positions. You know, obviously, Ash has put a little. We're not allowed to fill it up with players from our own team. Which, I mean, I could have put in Mark Schwarzer and Christian Jäger and Steve Vickers. And uh, I wasn't going to say Curtis Fleming because, bless him, he wasn't the best. But I could good have coach, filled though. it full. He's of, a good coach. Oh yeah, very good. But I could, I, I could have filled it full of Middlesbrough players, absolutely. And to keep it down to two, that was probably the most difficult thing for me. Yeah, I did that because uh, I could literally put the 92-93 QPR team in because I think as a collective, they were underrated. So, you know, you could say that. But yeah, I had to kind of put up because we watched those players more often. Uh, Sid, how did you find picking this team? I absolutely loved it, mate. <laughs> this, this is right up my street because for all the chat about, you know, the Cantonars, 
people like Bergkamp, Zola, all these brilliant players, nothing screams 90s football more than a jobbing midfielder who did six seasons at Wimbledon. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Uh, it took me took me about 20 minutes and I'd absolutely nailed it. And then I had a great time um, picking some what I think are pretty tremendous names from, from the, an era that time forgot. Right, we'll get on to just a second. But while we've got you, let's do the cheap plugs for you because you're doing a lot of 90s stuff at the moment. You're doing some blogs for the brilliant 90s football and you're doing some blast from the past for uh, another podcast. Just quickly tell us about that. Yeah, uh, over at 90sfootball.com. That's uh, 90sfootball.com. Um, we're doing blast. We're doing a kind of back where it all began is what we're calling the series. We're going week by week through the 92-93 season, which of course was the first of the Premier League, where we look at the storylines that were happening that season, the results, remember some of the personalities uh, and the great moments behind it. And it's it's just great fun. It's it's proving really really popular. Paddy over at 90s Football, he's a great guy. We're getting great numbers to the site, so. If people want to join in, just they, they probably follow at 90s Football on Twitter. Just look it out. Each and every week we're doing, um, we're doing a blog and it's proving really, really popular. Good stuff. And then your little stint on, is it Shoot the Defence, who the guys have been on here before, but you're just talking about Blast from the Past on there as well, aren't you? Yes, we are. We, we, this week we are covering the Battle of Britain. So, oh, Leeds um, Rangers. Indeed. Ah. This was the second leg 25 years ago this week. Yeah, we do a 15-minute segment on Shoot the Defence with Stell and pretty much the same thing. We have a few jokes about haircuts, uh, shirts, all the things you've got to talk about from 90s football. But yeah, we pick one game and we go through it in detail and we have a great time. Good stuff. Well, let's go on with these teams then. Uh, Joel, we'll kick off with you. I mean, we've got 33 players, I imagine, to talk about. So we'll do with, uh, we won't make this too long for people on their commute, but we'll go through them. I don't know if we've got the same players, but we'll see... But Mr. Young, who is in between the sticks? If it's not Mark Schwarzer, who have you kicking off with? It would be um, actually somebody from up the road, uh, which uh, is unusual for me to pick a player from Newcastle United. But I've gone for Shaka Hislop. Well, so have I. So that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> but go on, go for it. Tell us why. Uh, well, I, ju- I just thought, I mean, I always liked him when he was at Reading, to be honest. I think, did they get beat in the playoff final by uh, Bolton? Maybe? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and that was the first time I'd kind of seen him properly. I'd, I'd noticed him when we when Middlesbrough played, played him. But I just always liked him. I think he was just a big, tall, languid keeper. You've got to remember that when Newcastle were 12 points clear, he was in goal. Yeah. And, and it was later on when um, the late lamented former guest of the show... Pavel Cernicek went in goal. Everything felt a bit, and I think that's a big part of it for me. You know, a lot of t- a lot of times, you know, obviously Asprey gets blamed and and everything else, but there was a big change for Newcastle, and I think that's one thing you can point at is is why they lost the title that year. Is is what happened with Shaka Hislop? I just always liked him, and plus he just came across as very cool, even if his first name is actually Neil. No, yeah, it is definitely. I've got that in my notes as well. But I'm agree. I really rated him uh, when he signed for Newcastle. I remember thinking, what a brilliant signing! I really thought he'd play for England. Obviously, he went on to play for Trinidad and Tobago. He did make an England squad uh, for the '98, the game against Chile, where Michael Owen made his debut and Marcelo Salas scored those two amazing goals. He was in that squad, but he never actually played for England. He was Reading's Player of the Year '94 '95 and voted Reading's Greatest Ever Goalkeeper, which is pretty. It's a pretty good thing. Yeah, fingers like Marcus Hammonden, who was their Premier League goalkeeper when they first come up. He was a decent stopper as well. But no, I agree. Uh, Shag Hislop, I thought was, 
underrated and why he should be in this team. I used to have a friend whose uncle used to describe when a goalkeeper had a bad game as a shaka, which I thought was really harsh. He was a he was a Millwall fan and maybe it was a West Ham connection, but no, no way. I always thought Shaka Hislop, great goalkeeper and great goalkeeping kits of the 90s. He wore some classics in that Those goal. green and black and weird ones with all the shapes yeah, all of them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well that's easy. We've both picked Shaka Hislop. Sid, who have you gone for in goal? Uh, well, it is another West Ham connection. Uh, I've gone for Ludo Miklosko. Oh, um, good one. A real, yeah, I think a guy that... He was just always there during the 90s, probably for fans who, who didn't support West Ham. Uh, he was just a mainstay of West Ham during that period. Um, there's a few things that, I, that really stick out in my memory. First of all was the incredible array of misspellings on CFAX of his name. <laughs> because you have to remember, they really weren't used to this kind of, you know, it was more like Chris Woods, Peter Shilton. You can't really spell those wrong, but... Oh, Ludo's name got butchered. Miss Losco, Mika Soko, Miss Costco. It was all over the place on CFAX. Took him about five years to get it right. Um, the second thing was his goal kicks. And it tells you a lot about that era that his ability to boot the ball really, really far was considered a deadly weapon in our game plan. Um, <laughs> And the last thing, this is a fun fact about Ludo Mikloshko, which I have read in several different sources. He actually had the biggest balls in professional football. Wow. That's... Yeah, I heard, I heard Kevin, Kevin Gallen talked about them in glowing terms <laughs> from, from Ludo's loan spell. Oh, actually, did he go permanently? No, we had him on loan. I was going to say that. He was brilliant when we had him on loan. He's somebody who I rate really highly. And I thought, he was only there three months. He was a short loan. But we had the fans singing Ludo, Ludo, Ludo. He was yeah, he was a good player, and I think he was deputising for Lee Harper, who, for all his uh, dedication, wasn't the best goalkeeper. But no, I I agree. I echo these goal kicks. Can't echo the balls. But next time I speak to Kevin, I know Kevin Gallen. I'll ask him about Ludo's balls. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, he, he he goes into great detail about them. I've heard him talk about them, so they've obviously left a, a lasting impression. Uh, so that just sealed it for me. Ludo Miklosko, you're in goal. You're my man. Yeah, no, good choice. I I really nearly went for Jan Stayskel, who was the QPR goalkeeper at the time. But, I, but again, we had to keep away from QPR, but they were both Czech Republic goalkeepers at the time. That was my, the connection. Um, what formation? I mean, I've gone old school 4-4-2. What have you guys? Joe, what have you gone for? 4-4-2 for me. Yeah, Sid, are we 4-4-2 for you? Yeah, never in doubt, mate. That's right. That makes it easy then. Um, so I'll, let me. I'll go with my right back then. Um, this is a guy, I'll tell the story, this is, uh, it isn't because this reason, but I remember having a game of, I think it would have been Championship Manager quite late on, this would have been slightly later into the decade, maybe probably even creeping into 2000, me and my old friend, we had a few drinks, we decided to play Championship Manager for whatever reason, and I decided to pick this guy uh, for Man United, he was 38 at the time, and I played him instead of Phil Neville, or Gary Neville, right back for Man United, and he still won the league, so my love for him already grew from that point. But I always thought he was an underrated right back. He's somebody who Ryan Giggs, and this is an exact quote, said, other than Paolo Maldini, he's the hardest right back that he's ever faced. This was kind of midway in the decade, so I don't know if that was still true by the end of his career. But he played for Oldham, Villa and Everton, and I think Sheffield Wednesday at the end of the decade as well. So I've gone for Earl Barrett. As Earl my, Barrett? Earl Barrett. Earl the Pearl Barrett. Uh, as my uh, as my right back, he was the second division team of the season in 1991 for Oldham. Of course, played for that Villa team that were 
runners-up in 92-93, as well as a League Cup winner in 94 for Villa as well. Did earn three England caps in the Graham Taylor era, but there's always the asterisks when it comes under that regime, isn't it? But I always thought he was solid, always gave the consistent... One of those kind of... Not in the Dennis Irwin league, because I think Dennis Irwin was, you know, a level of consistency that nobody else was, but always gave a solid 6-7 out of 10 and could be really reliable. Popped up with the odd, you know, you know, assist as well. So, yeah, my right back, oh, the Pearl Barrett. Sid? I I like it. I think, I think he's a good player. I always liked him. He was part of Joe Royals team at Everton, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And um, it was. I always just thought he was good, solid, up there, and cool. You know, you don't get enough players called Earl these days. He pulled it off, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he sounded. He was one of those few footballers that could easily have doubled as a Western gunslinger. Oh, <laughs> the Paul Barrett. Yeah, my name is Earl. That reminds me of as well. But yeah, I met him yeah. once at the. Uh, he he does a lot for kick out oh, racism yeah. stuff these days, and I met him at one of the events and. Uh, Try to explain my weird kind of love for him. He looked quite scared, but no, he's a nice guy. So yeah, let's go to um, Sid then. Who have you got at your right back? Yeah, um, I've gone for the evergreen, uh, Mister Dependable, Roland Nielsen. Ah. Oh, uh, mate, 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 mate. Here we are, me and you, the same. Oh, we've got oh, it again. Perfect. <laughs> well, both of you can wax lyrical. Go ahead, Sid. Start. Well, I mean, when I was making this list, I was always thinking of players who perhaps, you know, because everyone wants, everyone wanted a Dennis Irwin in their team. When you watch Man United play, you thought, oh, yeah, I wish he was playing for us or whatever. But when I was going through this list, I was thinking of players that perhaps didn't grab headlines, but you thought, oh, God, I wish we had him because he never seems to make a bloody mistake. And that was the thing with Roland Nielsen. He was never flustered. He was perfect. He was dependable. Um, Coventry and Sheffield Wednesday. And when I looked into his career, he had a really great career before he even got to England at IFK. And he achieved some good success in Europe. I just thought he was Mr. 7 out of 10 in that Dennis Irwin vein, but just got less headlines, really. Yeah. Joel, do you echo those thoughts then? I think, yeah, that's exactly kind of what I was going to say. I mean, you think, I think he played for Sweden about over 100 times or something yeah. ridiculous. He got to the semi-finals of the European Cup. He didn't come to England. I think he was about 26, 27 when he signed for Coventry and maybe spent three years there. But just always one of them that was that was there. You know, I think they beat Manchester United in the League Cup as well. Um, is that, the, yeah, that was right, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I just always thought he was one of them. Solid, dependable, always there. And um, a great career, really. You know, just uh, just fabulous. I think, did Wednesday finish third, I think, in 1992? And he was a sort of heavy part of that of that get, of that that team, you know? So, uh, yeah, just uh, could run forward, just extremely fit. Uh, and obviously a great tackler, great, great defender. So, yeah, I was always a bit of a fan of Roland Nielsen. No mm. nonsense. Yeah, no, he was my second choice when I was doing this. So, yeah, <laughs> I think he was one of those you kind of, everyone remembers how consistent and how underrated is the word, how he was. And anyone who played with him, I think you watch a lot of those um, Sky Sports shows they used to do, they haven't done it this season, uh, Fantasy Football League, when they used to do their 11s, anyone who played with Roland Nielsen seemed to, he always got that right back spot. And I think that tells you a lot. 116 caps for Sweden as well. And uh, that's in an era where Sweden were bloody good as well. If you think of the 94 World Cup and Euro 92. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a good choice. On the other side then, left back. So, start with you, Sid. Who is on your left flank? Oh, you're going to like this one, Ash. Uh, I smiled when I thought of him. He is probably one of the most skillful and creative left backs of the era. 
he wasn't the you know in that Graham Lasso mould, who was kind of a very fashionable player. Um, I've gone for QPR and Spurs legend Clive Wilson. Well, you know what? My QPR player of this team is Clive Wilson. But go on, <laughs> you tell me why. Well, I, one of the first things I noticed about him it was, was he was just so comfortable on the ball, yeah. really. I mean, this was an era where fullbacks were pretty much expected, if you got in trouble, clip it down the line, run it into a channel and, you know, let the forwards do the work. I, I didn't really see that from Clive Wilson. He had, um, he had a funny running style he as did. well. I yeah. remember when I watched him, he sort of shuffled like he was one of those icons on sensible soccer. He just sort of shuffled across the pitch. He was deceptively quick. Um, and again, one of those players I looked at and thought, ah, oh, Clive Wilson, he's never injured. Never injured. Why is he playing this week against us? 500 league appearances, mostly at the top level, quality player. Yeah, he was the probably the first name on my team sheet. You know, I said we shouldn't pick too many uh, of our own team, but when it comes to QPR and underrated, I think trouble with Clive, he was in an era, he was slightly older when he was at the top of his game in 92-93, and England competition, you had Graham, um, Graham Masso obviously coming through, Tony DiRigo was still knocking around from 1990, and then of course Stuart Pearce, he'd never, he had too many players in front of him at such an age, it never quite worked out for him, but as a level of consistency, and I think that's what we're showing with our fullbacks is what we want, consistency. I don't think there's been a more consistent player in the whole history of QPR. Both him and David Bardsley, he was another name that came in nearly close to my right-back spot as a pair of fullbacks were absolutely brilliant. Penalty taker, bloody hell, he was up there with Matt Letizia. I don't think I ever saw him miss a penalty. Scored a famous one against Millwall during their cup run where they beat uh, Chelsea and Arsenal, then faced us. We knocked them out. That's for Rob, my brother-in-law. I haven't had to mention that. But yeah, absolutely uh, missed the consistency. Unlucky to never get an England cap. Love Clive Wilson. He was inducted in the Forever Ours club last year and he rightfully deserves his place. Um, so we've all picked a, a same player similar so far in each position. So who's your left back, Joe? I've gone for um, one of the shortest fullbacks in the history of the Premier League. Um, Aston Villa's Alan Wright. Oh, he was tiny, wasn't he? Five foot four. Even shorter than Janino. Even shorter than me, yeah. But no, again, but, a level of consistency. Absolute level of consistency and a level of skill that um, you don't often, you know, normally see with um, fullbacks. You know, I remember him scoring. It's the only goal from an opposition player that I've ever stood up and applauded. Uh, at a game, he scored an absolute belter against us um, one New Year's Day. Free kick from around about 25, 30 yards outside outside the box. Were they wearing a uh, blue kit? Yes, they were oh, wearing a blue yeah, kit. Yeah, I remember that goal, yeah. Sorry, yeah, go on. Fired it home. You might have seen me getting you know slapped about for applauding uh, an opposition goal. But I just always liked him. I just thought skillful, nippy, consistent, fast. And even though he played for Villa... You know, I was I was quite a fan of um, Alan Wright, really. Plus, he had one of the greatest unusual sporting injury stories uh, ever. Sort of a, a sign of things to come. He uh, he developed um, RSI in his knee whilst driving his uh, Ferrari three four eight. Well. I can't feel sympathy for him, can you? Really, <laughs> I don't really feel any sympathy for him. This is not like this is not like Rio Ferdinand reaching for the remote control and pulling all the no. big ligaments in his knee. You know what I mean? We could all do that, but there's not really much sympathy with uh, with him and his Ferrari. But yeah, is just, it? Well, I, just a question though, Joe. Was that because he couldn't reach the pedals? I, I think I think he might have been sitting on a sitting on a book or wearing platform shoes or something. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was going to make I was going to make a short joke, and it's very rare that I can do that. So yeah, maybe couldn't see over the dashboard, but poor old Alan. But yeah, I agree. I echo that. It's a good choice there uh, from uh, Mister Mister Young. Uh, let's talk to the centre of defence then, uh, Sid. Your first centre back. Uh, easy one for me. He was actually the first name on my team sheet, team sheet because I think he's had a very very rough deal. Uh, and when you look back at the statistics, you look back at all the appearances and what he achieved in his career. He's a man who's a bit unfairly um, uh, decried, really. And people think his career ended in 1993, but it didn't. So I've gone from the man you will never be, Des oh. Walker. Because, uh, and here's a few stats that when you look into it, you can't really argue against him. I mean, 17 years of top flight football. Um, he was the fastest player to get 50 international caps. He was in the PFA team of the year, four years running. Um, he was just a hero, really, at both Forest and at Sheffield Wednesday. And the thing I admire about him most is that what we're talking about in Des Walker is a guy who was actually a terrible footballer with the ball at his feet, but arguably the best man marker and the best tackler we've seen. Um, I thought he was superb. And, you know, people used to sing that song about him each and every week. Mm. They don't sing that about Gary Cahill. No one's singing that about Phil Jagielka. He was just tremendous, really. And um, it's unfair, really, that people remember him getting skinned by Mark Overmars, you know, which is no disgrace in any day and age. And he, he just got sort of uh, marked down for his part in that Graham Taylor shambolic World Cup qualifying campaign. And but actually, he had a highly respectable career after that. Mm. So there's centre of defence. Just don't let him touch the ball. Mm. It's an interesting one that Stid, because I think he's one of those players that again, it's it depends how you look at. Because for me, he was rated because I remember him, his brilliance at 1990. How good he was for that Forest team in the early 90s as well. Even in his days at Sheffield Wednesday, he had some great games there. But there are still people, as you say, that think his career stopped after that kind of unfortunate didn't quite work for him spell uh, in Italy but yeah great choice because I absolutely rate Des Walker I think he's one of the most you know accomplished defenders like you say at the ball of his feet wasn't his best but for pure defending great great choice uh, Joel you're when, for- uh, just sorry while we're still on Des Walker when uh, um, when we were relegated Middlesbrough in the whatever season it was the three points debacle we were. Uh, it was revealed two days after the relegation that we were. Uh, we had sort of pre-deals in place to sign four players. Two of them we ended up signing anyway. Later on, Gascoigne and Ince. Um The other one was Romario, and the fourth was Des Walker, which I always just. And that was in that must be ninety six, ninety seven. So you know he was still rated and still seen as an incredible player then. I think you know just purely positional and what he could bring to a side. I think. What I'd give to see Romario playing for Middlesbrough. <laughs> Romario and Ravinelli with Janino behind them. Nuts. More bonkers than they were already. God. Who's your defender, Joe? Um, I've gone for somebody who scored very highly in fantasy football terms. Uh, I used to pick him every single year and I always liked him. He's back in the Premier League spotlight at the moment. Uh, Joey Barton's been very unkind <laughs> about him. Uh, David Unsworth. Oh, that's an interesting one. I just but David David Unsworth, I always like just absolute no nonsense yeah. centre back, but also took the best penalty I've ever seen, and I think he's probably got in more for his penalty skills than his defensive work for me. Well, he's the but, uh, second highest scoring defender in Premier League history. Is that true? Yeah, only John Terry has scored more goals as a defender in the Premier League. 
well, like, well, it's because of all those penalties, yeah. though, you see. But I, I just always liked him. I just thought he was, again, part of that sort of uh, Joe Royal, blood and thunder, dogs of war, uh, Everton backline. But I just liked him, just a real passion there. Uh, true, honest centre-back, uh, great header of the ball. Uh, and again, the penalties I just loved. You could have had three goalkeepers in goal for some of those, and he would—he uh, was there. You know, I just—I uh, just always, always, always liked David Unser. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Villa, Villa fans don't really like him after his uh, his one-day stint. Was it at that club? Where he oh God, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was um, that was very peculiar. Yeah, wasn't it? Like for just wasn't it transfer deadline day and he ended up going back straight away yeah his missus didn't want to live in Birmingham or something like that I think it was because it's such a long trek you mean from uh, from Liverpool or wherever he was beforehand from from Liverpool uh, Villa that's very peculiar very odd one that my first centre back um, I look I went back to the last season in the Football League Um, the title winners that season was Leeds United and I always think with a title winning team you need a bedrock of defence they were a very very good collective defence that um, Leeds team with Dorigo and Mel Sterling but I've gone for the kind of the classy centre back you had Chris White on one side who was kind of the blood and thunder centre back but next to him Chris Fairclough is my uh, first defender uh, of Leeds United, uh, formerly of Forest, where he was in England under one, under twenty one international, signed for Leeds, was their Player of the Year in nineteen ninety, and of course was a staple hold of that nineteen ninety two league winning team where he played every game, got in team of the season. Always thought it was very decent on the ball. Was one of those really early defenders that would like to bring the ball out of the back, which you know everybody goes mad about now. I think John Stones is the the god of all gods that will portray that for the rest of the time but yeah Chris Fairclough was uh, my first centre-back for my team so on the other side I might as well continue with my other centre-back whereas Chris Fairclough has been the guy who's more the you know the ball-playing defender somebody next to him is the first ever player actually to win the Premier League with two different teams he won it with Blackburn, then won it with Man United. <laughs> he was a Norwegian international. Again, we talked about Sweden's team during the 90s. The, Norwe- the Norway team, of course, we remember in 1994 when the qualifying campaign saw them defeat England. This guy was at the heart of the defence. Won the treble with Man United in 1999. Henning Berg. Uh, I've, I've got, got the same man. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, Henning Berg. <laughs> I just thought, again, you know, you look Man United, you go back and you talk about great defenders of the 90s. I think he always gets missed off. I think Jap Stam came later in, in there and kind of sort of replaced him. But from that sort of mini era, uh, just before the treble, he, he was a great stalwart for Man United and, and that Blackburn winning season as well. Him and Colin Hendry at the back, really accomplished defender, no nonsense, really liked him. Uh, Joel, why have you picked him? I picked him for the same reasons, basically. He's kind of almost like a forgotten man for winning yeah. two titles at different clubs. I mean, if you look as well, they bought, they, they bought two defenders from uh, Blackburn, Manchester United, uh, and the other one being David May. And um, I just always, he's another one that I just always liked. Just a classy, you, you know, he, he came in, I think Ronnie Johnson was in, was Ronnie Johnson there at that time as yeah. well. You know, it's sort of, you're going from, Pallister and Bruce, who are obviously a legendary uh, backline pairing, into, as you say, Yapstam, Ronnie Johnson, that treble side later on. But don't underestimate what Henning Berg brought to that team. I thought he uh, did very, very well. And he also had a little stint as manager as Blackburn Rovers, did, yeah. as I remember. I don't think yeah. he'll remember that as fondly, will he? But yeah. No, I wouldn't have thought but he played so. At, but yeah. played at 94 and 98 World Cups as well. So, you know, this guy, we say underrated. He obviously was very rated, played for two title winning teams. Two World Cups, so yeah, I, I, it was my, it was I my last him pick. Almost, I picked him almost because he is a forgotten man yeah. of that era. I Completely, think. Completely, yeah. Um, Sid, who have you got? 
Uh, I've picked a man who got absolutely nowhere near a World Cup or an international <laughs> tournament. He's probably going to go on record as the most unlikely uh, Wales cap there's ever been. I'm talking about uh, probably the most famous headband in football, Eric the Ninja, Eric Young. Yes, Eric Young. Blimey, know, I, there's the name. Yeah, I flirted with Eric Young. I did actually think about him, but go on. Well, I just thought he was, again, he was that sort of ever-present during the decade. He was a player that I always looked at and I thought, oh, we're not going to get much change out of him today, especially when we've got <laughs> Trevor Morley up front. You know, we're going to struggle against Big Eric. Um, and he was just, he was an icon, really, wasn't he? The way he looked, the way he played. I mean, again, him and Des Walker, if you put these two in a team, we're not going to be passing out from the back much. Um, and the one story I remember about him was, and it was on one of those uh, Wimbledon documentaries, was that apparently Eric Young did not talk in the dressing room. He was the archetypal strong and silent type, and nobody knew anything about him. They didn't know if he had a family, if he had kids, if he was married, where he lived. <laughs> they knew nothing about Eric Young. He walked in, he took off his gear, he put on his headband, and he went out and he got stuck in and that was it. And off he went home. And I love that. It just adds an air of mystery about him. Uh, so, yeah. And, of course, I think he got something like uh, about 15 Wales caps. 21. In that, 21 in, caps. 21 Wales caps in that <laughs> crazy Bobby Gould era where he found people from across the globe who somehow qualified for Wales. Um, yeah. Eric Young, I saw him in person a few times when I saw... Wimbledon beat us regularly during the 90s and we just couldn't get past him. And it was the same at Palace. Uh, what a tremendous stopper of a centre-half. Yeah, just, I've just I've done the old Wikipedia, which, you know, I don't know if you can believe half of what it is, but a couple of interesting <laughs> facts on here that he was born in Singapore, which is a really random... So I don't know how he ended up playing for Wales. Um, oh, he was a British citizen, that's why, and he decided to pick Wales. Uh, but he didn't make his Wales debut till he was 30, so which is obviously quite late. Um, in, in a career but yeah he's somebody uh, he kind of just he's like a 90 that headband if that had been any other era they'd be selling them in the club shop wouldn't they he was such synonymous with that big old headband I don't know if he actually needed it or not or what it, what sort of purpose it served but I, he did cross my mind because I found central defence actually the hardest um, sort of position to fill actually um, Alan McDonald was another one that I was going to pick but I didn't want to put too many QPR players in there so yeah I found that uh, before we go on to midfield then that's switch to today's guest he is a midfielder um, he's somewhat you could say underrated in certain circles as well um, Graham Taylor very much rated him and picked him very much for the England team which we talked to him about and that crazy time under Taylor during Euro 92 and up to 94 World Cup qualifying campaign Sheffield Wednesday Storwalt as well a great midfielder and a great guy actually here's me talking to Colton Palmer, or Colton, as he doesn't like being called, earlier this week on Alive and Kicking. Joining me on the line then now is a big face of the 90s, one of, one of the big famous faces of the 1990s, Colton Palmer. Pleasure to welcome you to the show, Colton. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. A little bit jet-lagged, but, but good, thank you. Yeah, because you, you don't live in this country at the moment now. You're off, uh, whereabouts are you these days? Yeah, I'm in Shanghai, so I just flew in uh, Saturday night and I've got a busy week like with the, the launch of my autobiography this week, so I'm up and down the country promoting that. Definitely. Let's talk about the book then. Um, why, why now did you decide to uh, release an autobiography? Why at this time in your career? Yeah, I know. It's a strange one. It was, it's never been something... Uh, obviously, I've been re retired 13, 14 years, so it's never been something that was on, on my agenda to do. 
but but circumstances always believe in fate and uh, you know where I work in Shanghai um the the guy who, who wrote the book for me um is a playwright and an author and I went to see a play that he he wrote and it, it was a great play and I liked the way it, it was written and I thought that if ever I, I, I wrote a book I would I would ask so I would I would want it written in the way or in the style that he did so I ended up going to a literacy festival in uh, Shanghai where a black author uh, was there uh, Matusa just written a, a best selling book about uh, managers and he just said to me listen Colton you know it'd be a shame if you didn't do a book so that got me thinking and I asked Steve if he if he would do the book for me and we sat down and and come up with a, a, a kind of different framework about the book because like in in an autobiography you can you could basically go on Google and find out about a player where what he's done and everything about him and and so I wanted to do something different and mm. and have a message in the book and so we started writing the the book and then and then I had the heart problem and so that that kind of cemented the situation for me that I, you know there's things I wanted to say and messages I wanted to get out there and and I just felt that it was the right time to do it well, we look forward to reading that. Let's take you back to, to the 1990s then. You obviously started to career at West Brom, but come the 90s, you're at Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, that's for me where everyone remembers you most. Is that where you'd say you'd probably enjoy your best football at Wednesday? Yeah, without a shadow of doubt, not just football, in general, in life, it was a, it was a, good, time for, it was a good time for me. Um, we were great teammates. Um, we were close, and, 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 and that was evident in the way we played. We got on very well together and we understood each other very well. You were part of that uh, team that won uh, the, the League Cup as well. And as, what, what was that like? Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, we, we, we um, you know, Ron Atkinson had built a, a side that had everything really. Um, and uh, we were able to compete. You know, we came up from the uh, the Championship, as it were, into the Premier League and, and, and nearly won the league, uh, Premier League. Uh, we finished third that season. But it was a fantastic time, not just, you know, uh, playing football both on and off the field as a group of lads. We gelled and it, and it was fun times, really was. You're also part of the, the team in 93 where you reached both cup finals. Obviously, both played Arsenal in unusual circumstances. I mean, how, how disappointing is it to get to both finals and then lose them both? Is that quite something hard to get over as a player? Yeah, well, it was disappointing. I, I think I think more so the FA Cup. I, th I think the Carling Cup, with all due respect, Arsenal were the better side on the day. But in the FA Cup on the Saturday, we were the better side, and we missed so many chances. Um, and we, we felt we deserved to win the FA Cup, and uh, you know to lose it in the way that we did. I think was what. Well, as soon as the goal went in, he blew the whistle and it, and it would have gone to penalties. But we had so many chances in the game to have won the FA Cup, and that was. The disappointing part of that, I think, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, they were a better team in the in the in the Carling Cup or the FA Cup. We felt we were the better side, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you still look back and 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 say that you in one season you went to two cup finals, and and some you know players in life don't get to go to one cup final all their all their careers. Never mind playing two in one season. Mm. Your form there, obviously, got your England call up as well under Graham Taylor. Um, obviously, we know that the Taylor regime, very transitional, I suppose, is the word you could use it. But for you, still one of the best honours for you to, to pull on the free lions? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, uh, funny enough, I've been talking about that today and, and, and people have 
been saying certain things about that. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I was playing for England for a long time. I was capped, you know, I didn't play for schoolboys, but I was capped from the age of 18, 19 for the under-21s, England B, and I've been playing for England for a long time. I mean, everybody says I'm synonymous to the Graham Taylor era. Yes, Graham Taylor picked me for the senior team, but I have been playing for England for an awful lot of times. So I was captain of the England under-21s. Um, so it was, a, it was a proud time for me because obviously as any sportsman wants to be recognised by, by the national team. And if you get recognised by the national team, that means that you're, you're one of the best players in, in the league um, at that particular time. Mm, definitely. You're part of the 1992 uh, European Championship squad. It's a funny tournament we always say on the show because it's not one that's really talked about a lot in general other than Denmark winning it. Obviously, Lingen had a difficult time there, but what are your memories of Euro 92? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, you, you say Denmark went on to win it and they, they, come, through, they come through the back door um, and, um, and, and they come through the back door and won it. But in that first game against Denmark, we, we should have beat Denmark mm. on, in that first game. Against France, we were unlucky. Um, you know, uh, Pierce hits the, the, the crossbar and, you know, it, how it doesn't hit the back of the, the goalkeeper and go in. And then, then you know, we could have gone through and then things could have been different. But then we, 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 we ended up, we had two points going into the last game. And then, you know, I, I've got to be honest with you, I was one of the fittest players in the, in, in the country and I was absolutely knackered against Sweden. I, I, I couldn't lift a leg uh, and we ended up going out. And, and that's been the problem for the national teams anyhow for... For, for many a year because of the seasons we have. You know, uh, Arsenal, um, ourselves, Sheffield Wednesday and Man United basically made up the England team and most of us have played 75 games that season. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's what people don't understand when they talk about the national team going into, the, into a summer tournament. It's not the same for other nationalities. They don't, they don't play the same amount of games at the same intensity. You know, the, the Bundesliga, the, 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 the Spanish league, there's 15, 16 games, give me a season. There's not a, a, a gimme game in the Premier League. You go to Bournemouth, you go to Burnley, they're all tough games. So, you know, that as a, as a, as a part to play while we struggle in major tournaments. I think this, this World Cup will be a, we'll, we'll have to see how this goes because a lot of those players now are playing in the in the in the in the Premier League. Mm, no, it's, it's a great point. And go back to Graham Taylor. You said you're synonymous with him. I always remember. There's something I want to ask you. The, the documentary they did and him shouting your name in his, his quite usable tone. Is that something people shout at you before? Because I always wanted to do it. Say Colton. Is that something you you've been used to in the past? Yeah, I know people do. I mean, I, as I say, I've not even seen the documentary uh, uh, at all, uh, and I, and I don't want to really because. You know, I mean, um, I thought Graham, um, you know, was treated very, very badly by mm, the press. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and um, so I've, I've no wish to watch it. I mean, Graham Taylor was good to me. He was a good man. And, uh, you know, there's one thing, losing football matches, and there's another being ridiculed by the press, as he was, uh, for losing football matches. And I, I don't think one justifies the other. And those same people you know, are talking nice things about him. Now he's dead. But, you know, they didn't treat him too well at the time. And when Graham was doing his punditry, they're all 
actually, you know, I spoke, I speak to reporters now who say, well, what a lovely bloke he is. And Graham knew the people who, who, who treated him badly, but Graham loves football. So he'd still be talking to him in the, in the press room and whatever. You know? mm. Look, going further into the decade, you, you play for Leeds and Southampton. What are you, your memories of, of your time at those clubs? Yeah, no, I had a great time at Leeds. It was, you know, I agreed to go to Aston Villa, but I ended up at Leeds. Uh, I would come through the back door and, and uh, you know, I, I just felt that it was time to play. You know, he'd, he'd come and spoke to me, Howard, and, and, and I, I really got on well with him. I liked his directness. I liked to, he knew what he was doing. He was very assured. And I, I, I played for Ron for three, three times, uh, at three different clubs for quite a large spell. So I just felt it was the right time for me to, to do something different. And I went to Leeds and, you know, in actual fact, I played some great football at Leeds, went back to centre-back, but never got capped uh, at all while I was at Leeds, uh, which was a bit disappointing. But I knew that was going to happen anyhow. Um, but yeah, the great time. And then George Graham came in and, you know, I didn't figure in his plans. Um, and so I ended up going to Southampton. And yeah, I had a great time down in Southampton and, and should have stayed longer. Um, but due to family reasons, I, I had to come back up north. But um, yeah, great times, great mm-hmm. times. You also had spells at Forest and Coventry as well, but we always ask this. I mean, for you, you played with in some of the, against them and with some of the best players of that era. But who were you the best that you played against and played with for you in, in the nineties? Well, played with oof, there's there's loads and loads of those players. You know, you have got Mark Hughes, Ian Rush, Gary McAllister, Gary Speed, uh, John Sheridan, David Hurst, Des Walker. Um, the list goes on of players that. Uh, I've played with, you know, that have, you know, world-class players and characters as well. You know, um, the game's derived from those characters right now, and and of, quali- of those qualities as well. Mm. And against them, I mean, again, some great names for you, wasn't there? Yeah, some some great names. I mean, you know, Ian Wright um, in terms of players in the Premier League. You know, Ian Wright, Les Ferdinand, Alan Shearer. Um, you know, I played against the old Ronaldo. We call him the fat Ronaldo. But, well, <laughs> yeah, the original well, Ronaldo. Yeah, yeah. You know, Dennis Bergkamp, Patrick Vieira was a was a great player. Somebody I used to enjoy playing against. Um, you know, Papin. You know, played against some really good players. No, I had a good time. Good mm. career. Good time. Mm. And finally, we always ask players this who have played with the great Paul Gascoigne. We love a Gaza story on here. Have you got a Gaza story that you could share with us? Um, well, I mean, I roomed with Gaza for a lot of years, and um, you know, he's a fabulous footballer. Gaza, I mean, he's, he, he was one of his kind of his generation, and uh, you know, um, I've got a lot of time for Paul. I, I, I always tell people the story about when I first made my debut for England. Um, Paul had said to me after the game, "What are you doing, see?" And I said, oh, "I'm going to see a show," and he said, uh, "You know, don't worry, which hotel you're staying at," and. Uh, he sent a stretch limit to pick me and my ex-wife up at the time to go to the show and take us all around London and whatever. And then when we got back to the hotel, you know, there was champagne, there was flowers, there was everything. And uh, uh, it, they told me that Mr. Gascoigne had paid for everything. And that's, the, you know, that's my memories of him. He was, he was, he was a very generous and, and, and kind person as well as a very talented footballer. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Carl. We look forward to the book. Good luck with that and uh, good luck with everything else. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Carl. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
Okay, so we're on to midfield then. Just a quick recap of each of our teams so far. Um, mine, so I had in goal Shaka Hislop, then my defence of Earl Barracks, Clive Wilson, Chris Fairclough and Henning Berg. Joel, your defence and goalkeeper was? Uh, Shaka Hislop in goal, Alan Wright, Henning Berg, David Unsworth and Roland Nielsen. And Sid, your back four and goalkeeper was? Uh, Ludo Miklosko, Roland Nielsen, Clive Wilson, Des Walker and Eric Young, which sounds a little bit, those last two, Wilson, Walker and Young, <laughs> like a dart semi-final in the late 80s. Or some sort of like country music band from the... Some yeah, could be that. Well. Yeah. yeah. I think it shows... Accountancy, how, accountancy firm. Yes, day agents, <laughs> something like that. I think it shows all our mindsets that we've picked uh, at least a few players the same. So it says of all of our, our mindsets. But let's move on to midfield. Uh, Sid, do you want to kick us off? With the right wing, who is on the right flank for your team? Well, listen, I've just said that my team isn't the most uh, industrious, or sorry, isn't the most creative from the back. We're going to rely heavily on our wingers. And for me, on his day, there was no one more explosive, more exciting, unpredictable, capable of brilliant games and capable of being utterly anonymous than uh, Tony Arthur Daly yeah. at Aston Villa. <laughs> I loved Arthur Daly. I loved his hair. I loved the, the way he played football. I remember watching him on ITV's The Match uh, and thinking what a brilliant player he was. And there was a spell during the early 90s where I had absolutely convinced myself that if Graham Taylor's England just gave Daly more of the ball, we'd win the World Cup. He was... I just thought he was absolutely everything I wanted from a from a right winger, infuriating at times, always exciting. And if you look on YouTube at Tony Daly's goals, he can score a mazy dribble. He can score a screamer from outside the box, or there's a brilliant um, acrobatic scissor kick that he scored for Villa once. And I think it's about 1990 in this beautiful mitre copiers, uh, oh. away, sorry, home kit that they had. <laughs> Is that the one uh, that kind of slightly merged into each other, the colours, didn't they? Yeah, you know, you don't really see a design like that anymore. Nor a sponsor, I might add. Not enough photocopiers get love uh, on a a kit these days. So, yeah, Arthur Daly for me, all day long. Give him the ball, just let him do his thing. He was on my subs bench. Completely, nearly went for Tony Daly because I'm like you. I thought he was going to be the best player in the world. I know what it's about him. Was it the look, the pace, you know, the, the, the dribbling? There was something about him. You just thought he had all the tools, but he probably just didn't have the consistency to be as good as everybody thought that he could be but he he spoke to us we uh, we interviewed tony daly uh can't remember what how far away go back in the archive as they say but we spoke to tony really nice guy um really you know he's at wolves now i think as the fitness coach because i think have you have you seen the show he's in jesus oh, he's he hench. could be on the cover of men's health yeah he's hench definitely um he only put, he would have been in my team and the only reason he's not um, on, the, on my right wing is because this player and for anyone who listens to this podcast regularly may have heard me mention him once or twice before I actually picked him when they were doing those teams of the uh, what year would it have been 20 years of the Premier League something like that or best ever Premier League whatever 11 I picked him ahead of Ronaldo which uh, says a lot probably <laughs> that's probably rating it a little bit too highly but he, he didn't look like he should be a footballer or that good but around 95-96 in a Nottingham Forest team which I have got a little bit of a soft spot for there's another player later in my 11 that I picked from that team as well but he played on the right wing he had no hair but he didn't care but some reason when he got the ball things happened not just for Forest, but for a little while he looked like he was going to be English saviour especially around Euro 96 just in that build up he seemed to be the player that broke through I've gone on my right wing, Steve Stone. 
I loved Snap. Steve Stone. Again. <laughs> yes, I'm glad someone else has picked him. He, <laughs> he was just, I don't know what it was about him. He did look like he should be as good as he was. I don't know if it was the bald head. He wasn't in the always in the most peak condition. But once he got that ball, he seemed to things happen. I remember a goal he scored at Wembley during that Euro 96 build-up. I really thought that that was it. We were going to have a star of the tournament. And then for whatever reason, he was in the squad. But after that, it kind of fizzled out a bit for him. But for that kind of mid-90s, he was some player. Why have you picked him, Joe? I think the same thing. I think he, I think I remember him scoring for England. I, I sort of remembered, obviously, because he's a Geordie boy. So I kind of thought he would always end up at Newcastle, probably supplying the bullets for Shearer properly. And, you know, for uh, you know, he was part of the coaching staff there. But, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm just having a bit of a... I've just had a head go. The cat is just scratching at the door. So you're going to have to uh, come, uh, excuse me there. Uh, my head's just gone. <laughs> and sorry i've had the dog barking in the background sorry apologies you heard that see we have it's to right, pick part of all sorts um but steve's yeah. done <laughs> so joe is yeah and you know he's in the three lions video which is, is exceptional work from uh steve stone but i just always liked him i think they were exciting times at forest i think when he first came to the national attention you know just a, again a strong no-nonsense nip but nippy winger um, great cross through the ball and it just seemed like a proper character from from back in the day you know I always expected him to do a bit more for England and I think probably the um, the formation that was yeah. going on at the time probably put paid to him getting more games you can imagine under another under another um, under another manager under another system he probably would have played a lot more yeah no I, I loved him I had a poster on my wall I used to have this QPR wall then another wall of people that I liked and Steve Stone was there with Janino and Janola and Alexi Lalas and whoever else. Uh, Joe, who's on your other side then? Who's on the left wing? I've gone for a, a player from, again, from the Geordies, um, Keith Gillespie. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, who, again, I again I always thought, you know, he, he kind of got forced out of things at uh, Manchester United, of course, part of the uh, Andy Cole swap deal and the record deal that happened there um i just i, I like my wingers who can just burst past people i'm not you know I, I, I like a bit of speed get to the byline bang cross it in and that's what i always liked about uh keith gillespie and you know it's sort of very grudging that i'll give a bit of respect to a um to a newcastle player but there you go i just thought always Sean it's a bit sad what's happened to him in in recent times I think but uh just always one of them I kind of he's another one of them I think that you wish he'd have sort of stayed at Manchester United to maybe stay on the straight and narrow a bit but yeah. um, Keegan always said that he would never have got rid of Cole if um Gillespie hadn't have been part of that deal which is quite an in- incredible thing to say really he said he was the only player at Manchester United who he was who, who he wanted to do business about which I don't know whether that was a bit of kidology or, or anything but it, what an incredible thing to say, really. Yeah, what had Terry Cook ever done to him? What about Ben Thornley? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, that's a good choice. Yeah, Keith Gillespie. Some, he was, wasn't he the guy that basically put all the crosses in for, for Stino Espirito during that famous night against Barcelona? I think they both had such a stormer of a game. And they... Yeah, I mean, absolutely twinkle toward that day. Yeah, 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 I mean, that's that's another one. They won 3-2, didn't they, the mm. Geordies that day? And just, you know, rightfully is never forgotten up there. Yeah, yeah, imagine what it'd be like if we ever win a cup again. Wow, one day. <laughs> Sid, who have you got on your left flank? Well, this is where me and Joel are different, isn't it? Because he's laid out his criteria for what he wants from a winger: head down, beat a man, put a cross in. Uh, you know, a little bit of reliability and supply from the flanks. I'm not interested in any of that. I want a guy who gets his head down, dribbles, potentially does something amazing, 
or potentially hits row Z. Um, <laughs> so on the right flank, I've got Tony Daly. On the left flank, uh, the wizard of the dribble, uh, Peter and Love. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, as you were saying it, I'm going, it's going to be in love. It's going to be in love. Go on, yes. We're all in what love with Peter and Love. Peter and Love. There was a little spell during 92-93 where he was in goal of the month you know, every single time he was either scoring a screamer from outside the box or he was doing some insane solo run about five or six players. Um, he was just exciting. He was unpredictable. Uh, he had a great name. He seemed to have no interest in following a system or a formation. He just went out there, did his thing. Uh, I thought he was fantastic. I remember, a, I think he scored a hat-trick at Anfield for Coventry. He certainly got two. Um and yeah, I just remember him tormenting uh, left backs, right backs. He could switch to either flank, but he was also incredibly unpredictable. And I imagine that playing with Peter and Love was probably a bit like playing with Ginola. It's probably incredibly frustrating because you never quite knew what he was going to do. He was brilliant one week, crap the next. Uh, I loved him. These players like Tony Daly and Love, they're kind of the preempts to the kind of uh, Wilfred Zaha's and the Theo Wilcott's. Those People used to bomb on down and the final ball wasn't always their best. But the difference being that Daly and, uh, and Love, they used to score those crackers goals, didn't they? They just really, I, his highlight reel of goals, I've just watched a little clip there of Peter and Love because he's one I actually didn't think of and it's a great shout. Um, it's just unbelievable. Um, Zimbabwe International apparently Arsenal once bidded for him. So that would have been interesting if he, if he joined Arsenal. But no, that's a great, great shout. Yeah, Peter and Love, that Coventry team was full of a lot of underrated players. So yeah, and he was definitely at the, the forefront to that. Let's go to centre midfield then. Um, I might as well kick us off with my first one. Uh, I'm going Sheffield Wednesday. Um, again, going back to that same team as we mentioned earlier with Roland Nielsen. He played in the centre. He was American, so I'm guessing you know who he is now. John <laughs> Harks um, is is my pick for my first central midfielder. I mean, I as people know on this show, I've got a slight obsession with that kind of era of American footballers, not just because of their kit, but of, of just, just what they brought to, to the football. He was one of the first. He was the first American to play for a club team at Wembley since 1948 when a guy called Bill Reagan uh, played uh, for um, it was a team that doesn't even exist now I haven't written it down but yeah so in the modern era he was the first kind of Americans play at Wembley the first American to score in a League Cup final as well as he did for Sheffield Wednesday in 93 uh, although they went on to lose it that's the Steve Morrow final just one of those marauding midfielders late runs into the box he was already good at that but he could also backtrack kind of an early box to box midfielder scored an absolute cracker uh, against Derby in the early 90s. I think it was one of the goal of the season uh, contenders. 90 caps for America as well. And I know in that day and age, it wasn't as difficult because they weren't as good. Um, but he was a proper player for them in their central midfielder. Somebody who is coming on the podcast soon as well. I've spoke to him um, a couple of times. We just haven't worked out timings. But yeah, so John Harks, my first midfielder. Joe, who... Can I just say, yeah? Go on. Can I just say, we had John Harks on loan at West Ham. Yeah, you did, uh, yeah. I think it was about the mid-90s. Mm. So he'd just done a spell at Derby after Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, he played about a dozen games for us and... All I can remember him is once he took a good throw in, he did nothing. <laughs> Absolutely don't, nothing. Don't he was, point. <laughs> I'm sorry, his, his legs are gone by then. Um, I didn't underrate him. I tell you, I overrated him because I expected something and he was absolutely pony. Well, subjective is one thing. Yeah, it was later in his career because he played for Forest as well very late on. But I think, yeah, the, the era he, I'm talking about gone. is Sheffield Wednesday 
yeah, you're much better there. 94 World Cup as well. John Hart. I think what he'd done, I don't know whether I'm right with this, but I think, wasn't the MLS about to start the year later? So he sort of went to West Ham on loan just to kind of keep himself ticking over. It was never a sort of serious move. Isn't that right? Just to get himself some game time. I'm sure I remember hearing something like that, that that was the drill. And so, you know, he wanted to be right for the for the real league, the American MLS. Yeah, well, he was one of the, you know, forerunners of that league as well. And, you know, I don't think a lot of players take a move to West Ham too seriously, do they? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that, that was a particularly bad season for signings, actually. So, uh, you know, he was just one of many that year. But so I was expecting, as you said, the marauding John Harks at, at Sheffield Wednesday. And I, well, yeah, that's not quite what we got, unfortunately. We didn't get, get the right bill of goods on that one. Who have you got in your central midfield then, instead? instead? Sid instead? Sid, that was hard to say. Go on. Well, I've gone, you know, funnily enough, um, we, we said we were only allowed one, or sorry, two West Ham players or two of our preferred teams. Uh, so I've already chosen Ludo Miklosko. And then for me, one of the best passers in English football history, he could tickle and tease a football like few others could. He could ping a ball. He was fantastic on it. Not very good off it. His work rate most of the time wasn't great. He's a former guest on the show and I enjoyed his interview very much. He is the uh, man that hairstyles forgot. <laughs> Ian Bishop. Ah, oh, yes. Oh. Good choice. Yeah, no. good. Him. He, he was one of those players, again, I think it's the locks. I've got something about long hair. He just looked like he always had a bit of flair about him. But you'd know more watching him. But yeah. I, I, I really rated Ian Bishop, actually. I'm surprised I didn't think of him before. And he was a lovely chap on this show. He was indeed. And uh, that was always... And he's, he's very well thought of, uh, even down at West Ham, even now, we look back. Um, and, you know, some of the pitches we played on in the 90s were absolute quagmires. They were bogs. They were awful. But Bishop still found a way. When the ball came to him, he made it entertaining. He was a pretty footballer. Probably lacked a tackle... For that sort of era, he yeah. wasn't the most industrious sort of up and down the park, which is probably why he was overlooked. But in terms of quality and being able to judge the pace of a ball and put it on a plate for someone, it's just a shame he didn't have really good players in front of him to supply the chances for because, you know, Marco Boogers wasn't going to read Ooh. those sort of runs <laughs> too well. He was in his caravan, wasn't he? In doing his caravan. Yeah, he's doing what he's yeah. doing. Uh, Joe, who have you got as your first central midfielder? I've gone for a player who could play actually all over the pitch and I think for injury probably would have done a lot more but I think he played in defence then he moved into midfield he got called up as into the England squad as a striker in fact after going on quite a run when he was at uh, Sheffield Wednesday ah. I think uh, and that would be Paul Warhurst yeah, he really did play it bloody everywhere didn't he Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think it definitely started out as a mid, mid, uh, as a defender. I always liked him at Blackburn Rovers, and I think he played a lot at midfield in, uh, at Blackburn. So uh, that's why I've put him in. I just think, again, if it wasn't for injury, I think we'd have seen a lot more from Paul Warhurst. I was always a fan. And another one of them on Championship Manager, who was almost de rigueur. You had to get Paul Warhurst because he would just fit in everywhere and do brilliantly um, always just a really big fan of him he had a very cool haircut for the times bit as indie, well wasn't it? it was a little bit indie his hair wasn't very it? indie Britpop haircut yeah. yeah well he won the league as well didn't he he was part of that Blackburn squad that, that won the league so he had, Absolutely. A, he had a great spell at Blackburn it's, it was again you know he was he was in and out of the team a team a lot and I think it was one of them where where is actually his best position where probably his uh, versatility worked against him really you know I think it was the I mean the striking run didn't he score like seven goals in eight games it was a mad run he went on yeah 
for Sheffield, and he got called up, and I think then he got injured and he didn't actually play. But then I think people just sort of struggled with, you know, you get players like that sometimes where the, the versatility does count against them. And I would certainly say that Paul Warhurst was was a player like that, really. I thought he was a, a very good player and obviously, you know, won the league. So that's not to be sniffed it's at, not, really. It's no mean feat at all. OK, um, so second, second century midfield, let's continue with Joe. Who's got next to Paul Warhurst in your team? Ah, well, you already know this because I let it go in our little Twitter message. (laughs) My first Middlesbrough player off the piece. Number seven, Robbie Musto. Um, Robbie Musto, uh, we signed him from Oxford United, I think, in 1991 um, for £375,000. Just absolute all you want from a a midfield player, player. Tidy, tough tackling loyal, dedicated, uh, wasn't ever going to cause you any trouble, uh, w- would play if you cut his leg off. Uh, just a, a wonderful player. Still enormously highly thought of at Borough, would be captain quite a lot. I mean, people say uh, Ravinelli going off in the in the cup final cost us that game, but actually it was Robbie Musto going off that cost us more, I think, because we really lost all shape and direction then he was just tidy he could pass it around he could tackle when he needed to and he just but he you know but he gave off a cherubic air shall we say um just really really great you'd want him in any team i think i think there'd be any team of the last 25 years borough team that you would pick i think anybody who's been watching them that long would turn around and put robbie musto in uh just purely still highly loved i think the fans at charlton still dig him as well you know and Oxford so uh, yeah Robbie Musto I'm always very surprised that nobody else sort of went in for him yeah. really I think he could have easily gone on to a much bigger team than yeah. us you know and he's one of them that's forever associated with Middlesbrough and uh, love him for it he's in America now isn't he doesn't he do punditry he's out does, there it's the two Robbies it's yeah. Robbie Earl and Robbie Musto on ESPN yeah but he's, he's still very active on Twitter and he, he uh, likes to big up Middlesbrough when he can I just uh, always I just remember him just you know tidy triangles in the middle of the park um just everything you want, just a really complete, not not the biggest lad. You know, he wasn't a bruiser by any sense, stretch of the imagination, but just tidy, kept it right, tackled when he need, needed to, dedicated to the cause, um, just a leader on the pitch when he wasn't necessarily the captain, still loved at the club. Mm. I just realised I didn't do my left winger, but Robbie Musto is a good choice. Um, we'll come back to Sid in a minute. My left winger, which we've kind of moved on when I forgot to say, um, mm. was somebody early 90s, that Arsenal team, George Graham, known for being very regimented, did their job, had a you know element of kind of winning one nil all the time. They had that reputation, and then for some reason, George Graham thought I need a bit of flair, and in 1990 he signed this Swedish star from Cremonese. <laughs> and I I don't know, you know, just sometimes you take to players again. You know, in those days there were very few foreign players in the top league, so it's always interesting when you saw these players come in who who weren't English or British or Irish. So Anders Limpar on the left-hand side for Arsenal. He just gave Arsenal this kind of new dimension, this little bit of spark. Reminds me of the bruised banana kit that they wore at the time (laughs) as well. I always remember a game, I think it was Leeds. They had had a FA Cup replay back in the days where you'd have about six replays. They wouldn't do penalties until... I don't know, whatever time they decided, but there used to be like three or four replays. And the the game that they eventually,
actually won. I think it was Ellen Road. Arsenal fans might correct me, but he scored and played out of his absolute skin. And I was like, who is this guy? You know, we didn't have the internet then to know that this Swedish guy had come over from the Italian league and was really thought of. But I just thought he was brilliant. He had loads of skill. I remember his hat trick against Coventry. Um, that was another one of his highlights for um, for Arsenal. Of course, part of the 90, Euro 92 squad at, um, for Sweden and that talented, talented uh, World Cup team that um, in 1994 as well. And uh, Everton, he won the FA Cup as well. I don't think he quite had a, a good spell at Everton. I think injury got in the way, but really, really rated in those early days and as limper. And I think, to a certain extent, Arsenal fans would probably say he isn't underrated. But overall, I don't think he gets talked about enough so that was my left he is a good a good 90s uh mention for him as well he's mentioned on the first page of fever pitch oh of course yeah he is yeah good he's mentioned on the very first page when he when nick hornby is explaining his uh love of football and he's sitting there drifting off and he just thinks about what his mate thinks of anders limpar so i think he is actually this i might be wrong on this but i think he's the first arsenal player mentioned by name in fever pitch that's just off the top of my head but that's what i'd guess because it's definitely in the introduction and he bloody deserves it right um we've got both one more central midfielder each me and sid so go on sid who is your last central midfielder well i've gone for someone who's who's very well recognized in terms of name value but a guy who i do think his impact on the game was um was really underrated and undervalued. We covered him, oh, it's got to be 12 months ago when we did one about hard men. But again, he was a player I always thought, oh, I wish we had him in our team because he always used to dominate the midfield against us. I've gone for Vinnie Jones. Um, I think that I admire people like Vinnie Jones and even people like Robbie Savage in a way because when you look at their skill set, they really don't have a right to be a top-level footballer. But what Vinnie Jones did was he maximised every single, you know, he, every sinew of ability and character. Um, he was a leader on the pitch. He made himself, um, you know, front and centre of the the kind of locker room, the dressing room at every club he was at, and pretty much every club he went to, he was he was respected for what he did. Um, he would I wouldn't be, go that far at QPR, but carry on. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Do you know I forgot about his little swan song? You had him and Razor Raddock, didn't you? We well, did, Just yeah. Just at the end, on their little holiday before they both retired. But um, you know, Wimbledon, Leeds, Chelsea, Sheffield United. Still highly thought of. Again, I just thought he was that bit of steel in the park. These days, he wouldn't last five minutes. But, um, yeah, Vinnie Jones for me. A little bit of steel to add to the artistry alongside Ian Bishop. Mm, I'm obliged to... I mean, to... He's, won an, he's he won an FA Cup. He won a league. Did he win the league at Leeds? Was he there then? I think yeah, he... never relegated either. Never relegated Vinnie Jones. And he played for some, you know, teams that were always in and about relegation. And I think that's the thing about him, that when teams were struggling and they needed to grind out ugly results, Vinnie Jones was always sort of at the forefront of getting those. He was a leader. He wasn't good enough for top teams. But of his era, there weren't too many like him, I think. Mm, I'm obliged to say, as a QPR fan, and he, he's ending his career here. And what happened financially makes him not one of our favourite players at the club. <laughs> to what he did, uh, got the ump when he didn't get the manager's job and started off to Hollywood. But still, I, I think Vinnie Jones had his place for sure. I always remember a goal he scored for Wimbledon against Arsenal. I think it was on like a live goal. Super Brilliant Sunday goal. or a Monday Night Football. And it showed that, yes... 
Finney Jones was what he was on the tin. He was a brute, but there was a bit of football in those boots. And you don't be a footballer at the top level that long without having something about you. And like you say, never being relegated. He played with some very good teams. And even in before the dispute at QPR, him and Ruddock really kept us in that season because we were actually a dire team at the time. And having them two at the back was just, I think, frightened defences to death. So, yeah, no, good, interesting choice. Didn't expect his name to come up, but I can, I can see why you've put him in there. Before we go up front, just a quick recap then on our midfields. I had in my midfield on the wings, Steve Stone and Anders Limpar, then John Harks. And my final one, which I'm just about to mention in my central midfield, um, somebody who I, I struggled slightly with him because, again, is it, who rates him, who doesn't rate him? But I think overall, I still think he was underrated and probably unlucky when it came to certain factors in his career um, long overshadowed by his dad at Nottingham Forest there you go giving it away and never quite worked out properly from at Liverpool but for a spell in between that I thought Nigel Clough was an absolutely lovely footballer really intelligent could play in that kind of number 10 role before it was really a thing it's more of a thing nowadays I've bought him in centre midfield maybe like a base of a diamond if I wanted to be really particular about it but could play up front as well obviously won the League Cup for Forest in 1990 and was a big player for them during that era including their Zenith Data Systems Cup win of course who would forget that in 1992 and then moved to Liverpool scored in his debut but never, I think, injury and the emergence of Robbie Fowler. And, of course, they still had Ian Rush there as well. And then eventually Stan Collymore. Didn't quite work out for him then. 14 England caps, which in that era is no mean feat, given the amount of striking talent. But I just think he was a really intelligent footballer. Probably slightly ahead of his time for me. So I've got Nigel Clough. Any memories for you guys of Nigel Clough? Well, I'll just say I thought he had probably a starring role on Graham Taylor's Impossible Job DVD. Did, yeah. I don't know if you remember it. No, it's remember. when Taylor is bringing him on a sub. I think it might be against Norway. Uh, and he's giving him a load of instructions. And it's absolutely clear that Nigel Clough hasn't got a clue what he's talking <laughs> yeah. about. Not a clue. He might as well have been talking Swahili. And he just wanders on the pitch, none the wiser, to, you know to perform amongst, you know, a, a pretty poor group of England internationals. But it was so funny just seeing a top... This is the highest level of football, international football. And there's Nigel Clough being barked at by Graham Taylor and thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about, mate. Yeah, it was... Uh, I think that sums up Graham Taylor's era, doesn't it? Pretty much, unfortunately, for him. Um, <laughs> let's remind us quickly of you two guys' midfield. Um, Joe, what was your midfield? I went Steve Stone, uh, Keith Gillespie, Robbie Mustard, and Paul Warhurst. Hmm, I, I like the balance we've each got on this team. Um, Sid, yours again? Uh, mine's uh, Beauty and the Beast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've got, big time. Uh, Tony Daly, Ian Bishop, Vinnie Jones and Peter and Love. Lovely, yeah. It's a lovely balance from them two teams. Right, we are finally up front. Again, I found this slightly more difficult. I think midfield was the easiest part. I think problem with up front, the 90s had so many bloody good strikers trying to figure out which one wasn't quite rated as much as the other was quite a quite difficult I had quite a difficult one for me but let's start with Joel who is your first striker you're not going to like one of them but I'll go for the I'll go for the other guy first Um, my second Middlesbrough player of the piece uh, Jan Argafjortov yes the aeroplane Fjortov would have got your goals anywhere he went I mean that was he didn't do anything much every game you know he, he lolloped about he stood around with his hands on his hips and didn't do anything but score once or twice a game and uh, I'm always a massive fan I, we signed him on transfer deadline day for 1.5 million 
And it was, it was just the most exciting thing that could have happened to me at that point as a Borough fan. <laughs> I was getting phone calls from uh, one of my best mates ringing me going, we've only signed for you off, we've only signed for you off. I just loved him, just an absolute goal-getter extreme. Uh, and I think that every club wants those players. I mean, they're the rarer than they once were now, those players. But I think, yeah. you know, he sort of, he, he never got to play, that he played for, I think we us and Sheffield United were possibly the biggest teams he played for, really. I think he went to Barnsley and, and you know, he obviously was at Swindon Town, I think, in that disastrous season for them, though he still managed to get 15 goals or so. And kissed uh, Tim Flowers. And that was when he played for us. Was that, that, was, when we beat, oh, that yeah. was when we beat Blackburn 2-0 at our place. I was at the game, mate. I was at that one. Uh, yeah, that was the one where famously we were heckling. We were right behind the goal and we heckled at Tim Flowers. Tim Flowers, you look a little bit like Ian Balsam. And he turned around <laughs> and looked at us and just went, what are you boys on about? <laughs> uh, can I just ask, Joel, what is the criteria for a goal get an extreme goal getter? Because I've just looked up his stats at Middlesbrough. <laughs> All right. Now, go. hold on. I've, I've got to pull you up on this. 41 league games, 10 goals. Continue. Really? One in four. Yeah, I more than that. I mean, I thought he got a lot in the running when he when he came to us. So uh, maybe I'm just misremembering things. That's a terrible stats, isn't it? Because I remember, four. I nearly I nearly put him in my team, but because I don't think of him as a goal getter. You know, you get a twenty goal a season striker. Jan hmm. Fjordsoft was your eleven goal a season striker, really, wasn't he? I just always thought he was a just thought he was an exceptional player. I just liked him. Could hold up the line and score goals. Yeah. Well, I, just, I, he's someone I looked at. He, he didn't get in my team, but I can see where you're coming from. And I, th- I thought he scored more goals actually in his career. But then he played for Norway as well. He was part of that big, you know, again that Norway team that were very talented throughout that decade. Now a very respected pundit as well. Um, Sid, who have you got then starting up front for you? Firstly, well, I'm I'm not sure if Joel and I have got uh, the same one for our second striker. So I'm going to leave him off because I know you're not going to like him, Ash, and what that's going to please me. So <laughs> I'm going to go. Could be. Okay, go on. <laughs> I'm going to go to someone who scored again, another great goal scorer, a scorer of great goals rather than great volumes of goals. A man who um, one goal of the season, I think, scored a brilliant goal against Tottenham, which always delights me while he was playing for Leeds. One of the famous ah. uh, trio of brothers, Sir Rodney of Wallace. Yes. Didn't you tweet somebody the other day about a trio? And you mentioned these uh, uh, Wallace brothers and made me laugh. Well, who are you tweeting? I can't remember. Oh, it's, it's when these people put these um, these pictures of famous celebrities or maybe famous sporting players up and they go, name a better trio, I'll wait. And my response every single time I see one is Danny Rod Ray Wallace. Perfect so you will see that yeah. from me very, very frequently because I think they're a great trio. <laughs> but do you remember that goal he scored against, against Leeds? Oh, goal of the season. Dance, yeah, yeah. Yeah, danced down the left wing, cut inside, didn't hammer it, curled it in the goal, round a defender using him as a shield. And if you go on YouTube and have a bit of a Rod Wallace journey, which is quite an unusual thing to do, granted, particularly that's if you're Tuesday. an adult. That's a Tuesday for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rod Wallace scored a lot of brilliant goals. Um, and he's going to dovetail very nicely with the man who's playing alongside him. So, yeah, Rod Wallace for me all day long. Okay. We'll get to this mystery player who I'm quite intrigued by in a minute. It might, well, it might not be the same guy, but well, mine's just... I clearly yeah, don't we, like I'm a lot of players who, then. I'm not going to say who it is. It's, it's just, go on, All carry right, on. I'll do mine and then we'll go to this, these players that I I'm carry. just watching the Rod Wallace goal, by the way. Oh, yeah, I forgot great about that. Yeah, That's very, goal. very good, isn't it? Uh, my uh, first striker is, again, I've gone to the Nottingham Forest team of the mid-90s. 
somebody who had a fantastic partnership with Stan Collymore. Um, probably the one that gets lauded less, which is why he's in this team. Again, he was uh, somebody who came from a foreign land, which I always find, you know, sort of made seduced me, I suppose, in those days. UEFA Cup winner of Ajax in 92. Brian Roy is my uh, first striker. Thought he was a lovely footballer. Not the, you know, I've gone complete opposite to you guys. Not somebody who's going to score a lot of goals, but someone who's more created them. And when he does score them, you know about it. Again, he was a scorer of very good goals. Uh, played for Holland in the 1994 World Cup. Up, um, played for Foggia in Serie A as well. I just liked his partnership. It just seemed to work. Stan Collymore was the guy who scored. You know, he was always in the right positions, but he wouldn't have got those goals at Nottingham Forest, especially that season where they were qualified for Europe. If it hadn't been for for Brian Roy next to him, he's. Uh, I did interview him many years ago for Football Punk. Uh, which was a short-lived magazine that you may remember. Um, really nice guy. And he, you could tell there were some Forest fans there and everybody only cared. It was one of those Masters tournaments where you see a lot of the same people on the, on the circles over and over again. But it was the first time I'd even heard and seen a Brian Roy since those heydays in the mid-90s. And everybody was trying to get a word with him. Really nice guy. Really, really lovely footballer who I rated very, very highly. But who don't... They were, they were a strange team, weren't they, Forrest? Because when you think about it, they had... Roy and Collymore, I mean, I, I completely agree about Brian Roy. I mean, his, his left foot could rewire a television. It Definitely. was fantastic. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant player. They had him and Stan Collymore. But if one of them got injured, your reserve striker was Jason Lee. Or Salenzi. Well, well Salenzi, no. Salenzi was the replacement. This is where it gets oh, yeah, really gooly. Yes, he was the replacement for Stan the Man. I mean, one of, probably one of the worst replacements in football history. First Italian um, to play in the Premier League as well. Cool. Yeah, incredible. What a legacy uh, and what a player. <laughs> and if you ever do a worse players, he'll be on that list for sure. Um, but yeah, what a strange thing. There's a recruitment strategy for you. We'll get Stan Collymore. We'll get in with Brian Roy. What do we do if they, one of them gets injured, Frank? Ah, oh, we'll just stick Jason Lee in the team. Not quite the same no. player or the Poor same pedigree. Jason Lee. Poor old Jason Lee. We know about him in fantasy football. Cheer up, mate. Cheer up. Um, go on then. Who, which players don't I like? First you, Joe. What am I not going to like? No, let's, let's go with Sid first. Okay. Let's go with Sid first. Go on, Sid. Right. Now, he's one of my favourite ever players, but I realise that for QPR fans, he brings back painful memories of money wasted, which makes him no different from, from many, lot, yeah. many yeah. QPR yeah. signings. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There's lots of them. I've gone for a... It was the Battle of Britain this week, and I remembered how oh. good his goal was. How brilliant he was for Rangers. What a brilliant target man he was. He played at AC Milan, Monaco, Rangers. Uh, and then he did have a little spell at QPR, which wasn't oh. quite so successful. <laughs> oh. In 1992, I don't think there was a better mullet on planet Earth than Mark Haley. <laughs> oh, that's all. I, that's the only good thing I've got to say about him. Yeah, that was. Uh, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Sid. Yeah, not one I remember fondly at Loftus Road, but I do concur. At Rangers, him and Ali McCoist, whew, they were pretty decent, weren't they? Oh, they're fantastic. I mean, so we've re relived it this week over on nineties There's a cheap plug for you. Um, that goal is sensational. Two minutes into the return leg at Ellen Road, over his shoulder. On the half volley, Lukic just doing a roly-poly in the goal because he's so shocked by it. Um, Mark Haley was integral to Rangers winning nine in a row. And the second goal in that game, he absolutely storms down the left wing like, you know, like a stallion. Puts in a cross for a, a diving header from uh, Ali McCoist. What a great partnership. When people talk about partnerships of the 90s, everyone will talk about, you know, uh, Shearer and Sutton. 
Cole and York in the latter years. But in around that early 90s, those first three or four seasons of the 90s, Haitley and McCoist at a time when Scottish football at the top level (laughs) was not far off English football because the sky money hadn't come in. Rangers were bankrolled by a wealthy family. They were... They were as good a partnership as there was in British football. Um, I thought he should have won more England caps, personally. I was surprised that when Graham Taylor was doing the rounds with the likes of Brian Dean and David White, that Mark Haightley didn't get more caps uh, just because of what he was doing at Rangers. I think he's he's underrated, a little bit forgotten, uh, played for some top clubs and did pretty much very well everywhere he went aside from a little spell in West London. <laughs> it, right, the, the defence of Mark Haley, which I can't believe I'm giving him, is that it was at the end of his career, I give him that, but yeah, he was an absolutely terrible, terrible signing for QPR. Big money at the time, we did waste a lot of money in the next few decades, but at the time, I think he was over a million pounds. Um, just didn't, he, I'd never looked like he wanted to be there, looked like his best years were far, far behind him, because we're talking about a guy who played for England in the 80s and played for AC Milan during that period as well, and this had been, he'd come to the end of his career career in Scotland where he you know again it was a different caliber of football but by the time that he reached it back to Loftus Road I think he'd, his years were far gone and yeah he was terrible I think I was there for one of his only few goals against Wimbledon in the cup but he's yeah he's not very re- fond and remembered at QPR for sure so yeah cheers. isn't it amazing as any club had a better record I mean Joel might say Middlesbrough for overpaying has been footballers at the tail end of their careers and giving them one last contract because there was a spell when Brian Robson was doing quite a nice job at that as uh, oh, he, he used to look after he used to look after all of his mates I mean it, it, there's an amazing story about Andy Townsend that's just come out um, about Andy Tan- Townsend just not having to take a medical when he signed for the yeah. Borough. Robson told him to just jump up and down ten times and that would do him. Which is <laughs> just incredible. Old boys club, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, keep. Oh, yeah. Well, we did, yeah, especially in the modern era. Yeah, you think of guys like Jason Park and Jose Bazingwa, even Joey Bowen to a certain extent. Yeah, we uh, we did throw money at uh, a lot of talent that was long past their best. Although the Chris Samba deal, I'm talking very modern day here, is one of the funniest and cleverest deals, I think, and dodgiest deals, I think, I've ever heard of. But um, so, if Mark Haley wasn't the player you've got, Joel, who else is it somebody that's going to upset me? Well, I just don't think you'll think he was underrated, but oh, okay. I, I'm going. I'm going. I mean, I mean, by one stretch of the imagination, he completely wasn't overrated. But, but by others, you know, he didn't. And we've just been talking about him for five minutes, and that's Stanley Victor Collymore. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, just because purely, I, I always loved him, but it wasn't until this is so bizarre. I was stood next to him at a Kanye West concert. Right? Okay, so many questions, but go on. <laughs> I was just stood next to him watching Kanye West, and I never realised. Because I always thought he was a skillful player and I always thought he was a good player. And obviously his goals record speaks for itself. But I didn't realise how huge he was mm. until I was standing next to him. And I was like, how isn't this the greatest striker in the history of English football? And so that's why I'm saying I've got him down on my underrated list is because, yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult to say underrated when he was once the uh, the British record signing, you know, I, I understand it's a weird thing to say, but just the fact that he had that um, that touch, that goal getting ability, that speed, and the man was a tank. I mean, I was stunned when I saw him. I just I remember going and I, I stood with my mate, and I went like Stan Collymore, and he's like, what? And I was like, it's Stan Collymore. And he's like, he's not that big, and I was like, it's Stan Collymore, six foot four and about six foot four wide, and I just. 
it really brought it home to me seeing him like and i'd seen him play loads of times but you kind of don't put it into yeah in, in, into the real you know into real life until i actually saw him and i went good god how aren't you the greatest british striker of all time ever i always liked him anyway I always liked what he had to say. I remember him getting berated for uh, giving an interview for 442 in about 1996 when he said, I don't understand any other industry in the world that would spend £8.5 million on something for their factory and not understand how it works and not buy an instruction book with it or not not try to use it to its best ability. So I always liked yeah, that. But I, liked, just, I just liked... I liked him all over. I liked his pace. I liked his strength. But it wasn't until I saw him and I was like, good God, you could have been the greatest man ever. And I, and I think probably treated differently, he would have done. I, I, I always think that John Gregory was really, really, really damaging to Collymore's career. Yeah. I, th- what he, I mean, he had two really big issues. One, which we know about, of his own doing and his own sort of struggles he had in, mm-hmm. with mental health, which is unfortunate, obviously. But also, I think he, he had an era where there were so many bloody good strikers yeah if you weren't in that first sort of choice first three or four it was really really hard to break in you know at that time you, you'd get Shearer and Sheringham even Les Ferdinand who'd you know come close to winning the league could break into that for England then Robbie Fowler mm. and Michael Owen came later but I, I agree with you he could have been and I think Forest fans Matt Davis friend of the show will wax lyrical about him all day long because he could have been the greatest given a slightly different path through the era that he was given some of it for his own doing some of it just unfortunate timing like you say with John Gregory didn't really ever work out completely at Liverpool for whatever reason although his partnership for a time with Fowler was immense when we're talking about partnerships as well but I think you can get away with saying for what he could have been definitely underrated definitely um, that leaves me doesn't it that's my final pick then and I've got the wife to thank for this one because my other striker was really, really close to being Daly and Atkinson. So a shout out to him because, again, underrated. Great goal against Wimbledon. Sadly, not with us anymore as well. Uh, played for Real Sociedad and had a great partnership with uh, Dean Saunders uh, at Villa as well. Almost went John Spencer, but didn't think he quite matched up to it. And then I was talking about this theme with a friend of ours uh, at the weekend, walking through the park. Um, and then he thought it'd be clever to ask my wife, who, for all her everything she's got football is not her forte um she he said oh who would you put then in your underrated 11 and she went i don't know roy Wegley. and it hit me and i was like you know what <laughs> how haven't i thought of roy Wegley? obviously my wife hears that name far too much in this house that's why it's printed on her mind but he does fall in that category so my final pick and to kind of compensate for mark hately being picked in another 11 for, Q- <laughs> for, for qpr fans is roy wiggly somebody again one of the first foreigners uh, to come over here in those early days of the football league, uh, the 90s in the football league in the premier league had the flowing locks was south african played for america was our first, qpr's first ever one million pound signing as well and as a club, we've got a history of number 10s. When you talk about Marsh and Bowles and Stainrod, he fits that mould completely. Scored goals, top scorer in uh, 1991 for QPR and 92. Scored great goals, scored penalties. He scored a goal of the season, which I put on Twitter. I think it was it's October 27th, I think it was, last week against Leeds, where if Lionel Messi had scored that or, or anyone else of that calibre, Ronaldo in that era, you'd have known it over and over again. Went around the whole defence and slotted it home. Performed admirably for Blackburn and Coventry. Scored a great goal against uh, Ipswich for Blackburn as well. I absolutely love the man. I've mentioned it many, many times on this <laughs> podcast. Roy Wegley, my hero. But I think overall he is underrated because when people ask me who my favourite player is, they always expect me to say Ferdinand Sinclair. Sinton is somebody I 
thought might get into this team as well. I but, nearly put Trevor Sinclair in. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's one. I think. Yeah. I think he excelled later in the two thousands, didn't he? When he went to the World Cup with um, with England. Yeah, that's why I kind of pulled him. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you guys want to quickly tell me how much you love Roy Wegley, I'm not gonna I'm gonna deny. I think Sid, you should. Well, start. I will say, I will <laughs> say, Ash, uh, my my earliest memory of Roy Wegley is when he was at Luton, yeah, of course, and yeah. we drew Luton. It's when they had that plastic pitch, and we drew Luton in a League Cup semi final. I think it was about eighty nine or maybe eighty eight. Uh, we were crap, absolutely rubbish team. Tony Cotty had left. We we couldn't score a goal for Toffee, but somehow we fluked our way through to the League Cup semi-final. And Roy Wegley and Big Mick Harford tore us to pieces in both legs. We lost 3-0. It was live on a Sunday, the match on ITV. We lost <laughs> 3-0 at home to Luton. And Wegley scored a goal not dissimilar to the one he scored at Ellen Road. He did it for QPR. He danced around all of our team. Uh, and him and Mick Harford were unplayable that day, and I I loved him. I very nearly put him in, but I knew you would, so I thought I'd give <laughs> I really, you. I really wasn't going to as well. It was just occurred to me. If I, I thought I can't do it, and then when my lovely wife Joe said it, I was like, you know what? Yeah, he was underrated. It fits the category, and I mean, it, like you say about his, his his feet. I mean, he wasn't the quickest. But it just seemed to the ball seemed to stick to his feet and his boots like no other I've seen at QPR. I mean, the only player that I've seen in my generations that compares is Adil Tarab, the way that the ball used to just stick to his feet and the skill that he had. Um, so, yeah, my final pick, and I think it's a lovely note to end this very much enjoyable podcast on, uh, Roy Wegley. So, I've got a question for you regarding go Roy Wegley. Have you set up this Where Is Roy Wegley Twitter? <laughs> is that you? It was very long time ago. I tracked Roy Wegley down because I wanted to interview him for at the time it was the QPR magazine that no longer exists um, tracked him down um, I don't think I was catfished I'm pretty sure it was him he's coaching in America we had a few emails but basically the, the short tale of it is that he didn't want to do an interview he doesn't want to talk about his football career anymore which is such a big shame but you know each to his own if that's what he wants to be um, so to try and convince him uh, a friend of mine and, and myself yeah put started this twitter feed that is still there that has got a miserable amount of followers but we we're trying to convince roy to to talk to us but it's it never popped happened up in my feed the other day <laughs> yeah i saw that too i, I was going to mention it i didn't realize you were the brains oh, behind the, it well, or the stalker behind it yeah I, I wouldn't say brains because it's not done very well but yeah if you want to follow and you want to hear from roy wegley maybe it'll help a little bit yeah we want wegley on twitter i do post random pictures of roy wegley it's a little bit stalkerish i don't claim it much i do share it it's not just me so there is half and half but yeah, I just it would be really nice to hear from him. I'd try to get him on this show and do some stuff and keep it up, but really doesn't want to, to talk to uh, about his career anymore. Which is uh, maybe it's just you, Ash. Possibly, maybe if maybe if what like me or Sid were to try, he'd probably be a bit more forthcoming. I may have scared him off. Him. Yeah, I may have scared yeah. him off, which is fine. If there's anyone, Ash, Ash, can I just do a note? Just are we allowed to do a little uh, subs bench also round? I was going to yeah, nearly made it. I was going to give you some honourable mentions. So yeah, go on, Sid. Who's who? Well, who I'll just do one. And actually, we were chatting about him just before we went on air. Um, I always had a lot of admiration for Marcus Gale at Wimbledon, uh, Watford. I thought he was uh, he was just an absolute pain in the arse every time we played <laughs> Wimbledon. Good left foot, good in the air, you know, uh, good ability on the ground. Again, he was a sort of 10 or 12 goal a season striker, a real presence, could play anywhere across the the front three. Uh, He was just a nuisance generally, and I, I saw him score too many goals against us during the 90s. Yeah, good choice. Joe, did you have anyone who nearly made it? I had a few, yeah. Um, just like John Scales nearly went in, football's okay, yeah. best uh, Tim Lovejoy lookalike. Of course. Uh, 
Jeff Kenner nearly went in mm. for me instead of Roland Nielsen. Uh, Nicholas Alexanderson. Oh, Everton, who, of, yeah. of Sheffield Wednesday. Well, he went to Everton in 2000, yeah. but um, I always liked him on the wing. And uh, very nearly put Nick Barmby in. Mm. He's another one. Rated in some circles, possibly underrated in others, isn't it, really? I mm. suppose He's an, he falls into yeah. that category. I flirted with uh, David Hurst up front. Uh, I said Dalian Axon, possibly. Uh, Jesper Blomquist was one that was in my team oh, that's good. for that's a good. while. But then I just realised he scored one goal for Man United and pay, probably was rated as well as he probably played for that time in uh, Manchester United. So um, was there anyone else? Uh, Alan McDonald, who I mentioned previously as well. Um, Gary Mabbott to a certain extent. But then I thought in the 80s, he really did. He was more probably respected and, and rated than he was uh, in the mid-90s. So, yeah, I think I, I think all three of our teams, um, good balance, good mix of players, bar Mark Haley, of course. Um, <laughs> but we did very well. So thank you, gents. Thanks for that. I do like doing an 11. That's a really different one. If you guys listening want to do your own one, stick it on Twitter. You know, either do it on a tweet or write it on a note and screenshot it. Be fascinated to see who you guys pick in your underrated 11s as well. But before we go, uh, Joel, where can people get in touch with you if they want to talk about Young Arga Filtoff or Robbie Musto or George Michael? <coughs> they can talk about them, excuse me, coughing. They can talk about them all they want. It's lovely. Uh, Joel Baby Hurt, J-O-E-L-B-A-B-Y-H-E-R-C. Uh, that's Twitter and Instagram if you want to find me. Come along. You know, as we say every time, it's the cat, it's wrestling, it's music, it's, <laughs> it's borough. It's just the same old nonsense, you know. I just talk about the same things over and over again. No wonder I'm single. A lot, lot, lot of Top of the Pops as well. You do like a tweet along to Top I of the Pops. I do like Top of the Pops. T- well, it's a big trends number one every week, mate. Yeah. That, top, that Top of the Pops on BBC4. Yeah, it's good gear. Hashtag bring it back. And Sid, if people want to buy your book or read your blogs, where can they find you on the social network? Uh, at Sid underscore Lambert. Yeah, and please check out my book, Cashing In. The reviews have been amazing. We're averaging uh, five-star reviews, and uh, people are saying it's a must-read for any 90s football fan. Check it out. It's fun. And if you loved Dream Team and you like nostalgia, it's the book for you. Indeed, I echo those thoughts. I've got the book. It's fantastic. Stick it on your Christmas list. Uh, but thank you very much for downloading the podcast. I've been Ash Rose. This is Alive and Kicking. Until next time, keep it 90s.